Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Matthew 11, chapter, or Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of our Savior. And for the comfort they are to us. Lord, as we think on them and meditate on them and roll them around in our brains, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us. So bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Here's my question for us as we get going this, this morning. And it's a broad question. Uh, Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? We could also put it, what what is he like? What is Jesus Christ like? What does he care about? What is his focus? What what did he do and what is he doing now? What's Jesus' heart? It seems that everybody has an answer to those questions, right? Even, even if you've never gone to a church, you've never cracked open the Bible, you have some sort of answer to those questions. Who is Jesus? Truthfully, Scripture says a lot about the Son of God. <laughs> we would expect it to, right? A lot about the Savior of mankind. What ends up happening, though, is that we become victims of our circumstances, okay? And being victims of our cultural circumstances, we have a tendency to emphasize certain aspects of Jesus' work to the exclusion of others, right? We, we focus on some aspect and we forget about everything else. For example, Because we have political turmoil in our society today, Reformed Christians rally around Jesus as king, right? The picture given us in Psalm 2 of the Son of God dashing the nations to pieces with a rod of iron is is comforting to us because as the ostracizing of Christians in a society increases, it brings comfort. But this, you know, in, in where this is overemphasized, 
This is the, the Jesus of the theonomists and the abolitionists. Right? Jesus as king becomes a reason that fighting and revolution become legitimate goals. And in that context, you need to have a revolutionary as your Jesus to lead you into battle. Leon Potals. I think that's how you say it. Potals, Potals. You say Poodles. I say Potals. Leon Potals. In his 1999 book called The Church Impotent, which is a great book, worth reading, a little weird, argues that in the late 19th century to the present, the church has primarily been a female institution. Right? He, he starts off his book with this phrase, women go to church, men go to football games. Right? In fact, going back to the American Revolution, okay, going back beyond the 19th century, he mentions this statistic, 59% of all new members in congregational churches from 1730 to 1769 were women. 60 to 40. 60%, 40%. Now, if the pastors of those churches were influenced by this phenomena, and who in their right mind would argue against that, we've seen the feminization of the church up front and personal during our time in the PCA. Right? But if pastors of those churches were influenced by this phenomena, it, I would argue, would trickle down into their view of who Jesus is. Right? Their Christology would also be feminized. They'd need to feminize Jesus. So what would that look like? Well, it would be the polar opposite of viewing Jesus as a wrathful king who comes to destroy the nations with a rod of iron. It would be a Jesus who had flowing locks of hair and was a good, obedient boy, right? And who had almost universal grace for everybody, regardless of their rebellion. Jesus becomes, in that scheme, the, the mother who can't see any of her child's faults, right? This is the Jesus of evangelicals. This is the Jesus of universalists. Jesus as mother, becomes a reason to embrace an antinomian scheme where sins and sinfulness are just completely irrelevant, unimportant. In the Middle Ages, Jesus as a mystic force, right, was the predominant definition of him because there, it was a religion of superstition. Jesus as mystic force becomes a reason to search for Jesus' bones and his garments and the bones of the saints as, you know, religious talisman. On and on we could go, and this teaches us much about ourselves. Though we are students of Scripture, we can at times allow our cultural circumstances to come along and then dictate to us who Jesus needs to be. And, and, and who we need Jesus to be at that moment. We have a tendency to allow our cultural circumstances define for us what kind of Jesus we need or what kind of Jesus we would like or what kind of Jesus scratches our itch and makes us have a place in the world. But his kingdom isn't of this world. 
So on the one hand, I'm okay with I'm okay with that because Jesus is not just one thing, right? He is many things. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is he is a savior, he is a father, he is a son, he is a healer. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and have a, a thousand different uh, foci for, for Jesus. And our circumstances should push us to search Scripture for Jesus' specific work in specific times. Right? There are times when an aspect of Jesus' being is more precious to us than at other times. Right? When, someone, uh, when a loved one dies, that he is the resurrection, that is very precious to us. And that becomes our focus. On the other hand, there's danger in, in overemphasizing one view of Jesus because it can, it can tend toward a, a pervasive caricature of Christ. Right? And when we worship a caricature of Jesus based upon what we like about his position in our particular cultural moment, well, we're in danger at that point of idolatry right we have a tendency to be reactionary and when we determine we need Jesus and what we determine we need Jesus to be reveals our reactionary impulses right so that introduction leads me to these questions does scripture give us a picture of what animates Jesus himself Does Scripture tell us what crowns Jesus, what is at the core of his affections? Right? Now, now we find out from Scripture the, the, I'll use this word, I think it's the right word, panoply. We find out from Scripture the panoply of Jesus' attributes, right? And all of them are the fullness of who he is. Each and every one of them is, is fully what he is. But, is it right for us to ask if there's something at the core of his being that animates his work? What got me thinking about these verses was a few things. First, I spent several weeks severely depressed, almost hopeless in isolation while I was sick, severely depressed. Whether that depression and despair was because of the illness, COVID, doing its work on my brain, or because God was putting me through a trial, or because of my own sin, or because of the medication I was taking, I don't know, I don't know. But it felt like what we read of in in that chapter on assurance from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in many ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. It was a terrible trial. It was a terrible trial where I'm asking myself if God even exists. If there are 
if when your body goes into the ground, that's just it. Contemplating these questions over and over and getting no relief except by reading scripture and prayer. Praise God for that. It was a trial of unbelief, and, and it was by God's mercy that I endured. But, so that's the first thing. It was, it, I was, I was, um, I don't even know how to put wor- it into words. The second reason that I was at, thinking about this question, the reason um, I was thinking about it was because I started reading a book that was very timely in the midst of all of this depression that asked these questions and gave some answers. Now, the book is by a pastor named Dane Ortland. Get this, he's in the PCA. The book is published by Crossway, and he writes for the Gospel Coalition. It's not my standard fare. <laughs> not at all my standard fare. But what attracted me to it was a dear friend of mine recommended it that I trust. And second of all, he just stole all the book from the Puritans. And so you know it's, it's going to be at least that solid. He, it's, he basically took Thomas Goodwin's material and modernized it and made it into his own. Um, and so I took it up. Uh, this recently published book is entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. So you can see how it was a timely moment for that to come into my life. It was the right book at the right moment. Here's how how the author begins, and this beginning relates to those questions about the core of of Jesus and his being that I was was positing earlier. He, He writes this, my dad, who's also a pastor, Ray Ortland, Raymond Ortland, you may have heard of him. My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. There it is. For I am gentle. He talks about himself in the midst of that. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ortland goes on, he says, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and humble in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. One thing to get straight right from the start is that when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or New, it is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and directs us. This is why Solomon tells us to keep the heart 
with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is a matter of life. It is what makes us the human being each of us is. The heart drives all we do. It's who we are. And when Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. Who could ever have thought up such a savior? He asks. J.C. Ryle, uh, whose commentaries on the gospel are good meat, says the same thing. He writes this. He says, we should mark what an encouraging account Jesus gives of himself. He says, I am meek and lowly of heart. How true that is. The experiences of all the saints of God have often proved. Mary and Martha at Bethany. Peter after his fall. The disciples after the resurrection. Thomas after his, after his cold unbelief. All tasted the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is the only place in Scripture where the heart of Christ is actually named, Ryle says. It is a saying never to be forgotten. So, if what Spurgeon and Ortland and Goodwin and Ryle are speaking to is right, at the core of Jesus being his, his gentleness and lowliness. How can this be? I mean, think for a moment about Jesus being happy to be the son in relation to his father. Jesus did not regard equality with God, right, with his father, something to be argued about, something to be grasped onto with impunity. Think about the fact that Jesus condescended to be born of a woman. Right? Think about the fact that that the incarnation was accomplished in order to redeem a wickedly sinful people who did not deserve the least of his mercies. Think about the fact that to do that, he was silent when mocked and endured, endured a breach with his beloved father. Think about the fact that when all is done then the Son of God Himself will also be subjected to the One, the Father, who subjected all things to Him, so that God, His Father, may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15. So dear brothers and sisters, think about the fact that in the face of your greed and your selfishness and your unkindness and lust and your vanity, your hatred, your love of darkness, your anger, your pride, your sin of rebellion against the God who made you, Jesus has not cast you off, but has approached you with a gentleness and humility. Not only that, but because Jesus is a man and has been tempted as a man, he is not only not angry, but he is actually sympathetic towards you. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. 
In fact, that Jesus has been tempted and has fought through it every time all the way to the point of obedience when you and I often depart, you know, mid-temptation into our sin means that Jesus knows better than anybody else the very power of temptation. Even so, when we give into temptation and when we sin, Jesus, because of his heart of gentleness and humility, even stays in sympathetic solidarity with you. It is astonishing gentleness. Is it not that the, that the, the sinless judge of all mankind continues to love weak sinners like ourselves, right? But that's his heart. That's what animates Jesus. John Owen on this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 that we are considering said, Christ is inclined from his own heart and affections to give us help and relief, and he is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. Thomas Goodwin wrote, Let us understand how feelingly and sensibly affected the heart of Christ is to sinners under all their affirmities. Yes, and even when they sin, he stays in solidarity with them. How do I know that? How do I know that he stays in solidarity with Christians who sin? Because of this passage in Hebrews. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always making intercession for you. That's what he lives to do, to make intercession for you. On this verse, Owen beautifully remarks, he says, The intercession of Christ is the great evidence of the continuance of his love and care, his pity and compassion towards his church. Had he only continued to rule the church as its king and lord, he had manifested his glorious power, his righteousness and faithfulness. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. But mercy and compassion, love and tenderness are constantly ascribed to him as our high priest. So the great exercise of his office in laying down his life for us and expiating our sins by his blood is still peculiarly ascribed unto his love. Wherefore, these properties of love and compassion belong unto the Lord Christ as our high priest. All men who have any spiritual experience and understanding, listen to this, all men who have any sense of spiritual things, all men who have any spiritual experience and understanding will acknowledge how great the concernment of believers is in these things and how all their consolation in this world depends upon them. He whose soul has not been refreshed with a due apprehension of the unspeakable love Tenderness and compassion of Jesus Christ is a stranger to the faith and unto all true spiritual consolation. 
And then there's this in John's first letter, which again reminds us that gentle and humble Jesus is in solidarity with us even when we sin. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what's my point in all this? I realize we have not even scratched the surface of this text. right? We haven't discussed Jesus' call to come to him. We haven't discussed what it means to be heavy laden, though in a word this is the burden of sin, right? We haven't discussed the rest Jesus offered. We haven't discussed the requirement we have of taking on Jesus' easy and light yoke, the yoke of learning from him all that he teaches and obeying, right? And that not being any burden at all for those who have been saved by such a gracious Savior. What we have focused on is this attribute of gentleness, and humility that marks Jesus' heart. That gentleness and humility only makes sense, brothers and sisters, when you remember the full tragedy of man's sin. Right after Adam's sin, when violence spread through the entire world, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man and animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made him. Sin has corrupted everything. And God grieved, God grieved that he made man. Think about that. And the anger of the Lord raged against the world and the floods came and expressed that anger and judgment of the Lord perfectly. And yet, gentle and humble Jesus, who lives to intercede on behalf of his sinners, did so for one man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That sentence of Scripture should cause the goosebumps to raise on your arms. Right? It should take your breath away. It should fill you with great joy and unspeakable peace. Sinful Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That, as in all grace, was because of the intercession of the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ the Redeemer. Now, as Owen taught us in the quote I shared a moment ago, those who are alive in Christ know that Jesus' love and compassion towards sinners is what is most important. It is Jesus' gentleness with sinners that most properly defines for us what Jesus is and what is the greatest problem that mankind faces. Our worst problems in this world is not losses of freedom due to liberal political systems. It's not our biggest problem. Our worst problem in this world is not the encroachment of the powers of the world on our individual liberties. 
No, our worst problem is not even that sin corrupts the systems of the world. No, our worst problem is that hell is real. And we are all born in sin. Getting our view of Jesus wrong, getting our marching orders as the church wrong, getting our priorities mixed up makes us look to the world like we care more about gaining the world than about saving souls. This is the predicament of reconstructionism and much theonomic postmillennialism. That is the predicament of it. They would all deny it. I understand that. But if there is any truth in what I'm saying, a fruit of missing the heart of Jesus and of thinking that his kingdom is, is, is that you think that his kingdom is of this world. Now, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness and humility is a response of love to those who would provoke him by their sins. And remarkably, it's the heart of God to long for the salvation of all sinners. Do you know that? It's the heart of God to long for the salvation of all sinners. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that God our Savior is a God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? And our Calvinistic wires get crossed. That is the very heart of Jesus. He desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's not move away from first principles. Jesus came to earth to save his people from their sins. Jesus is a friend of sinners. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Gentle and humble Jesus is a savior of sinners. And so let me conclude here. If, if you don't have a proper conception of, G, of God's perfect holiness, his absolute justice, his jealous love for his son, Jesus. The idea of hell is too much to bear. Think of the worst, exp think of the worst experiences of your life. Pain, suffering, loneliness, despair, depression, anger. Rage, hopelessness. And now multiply them by an eternity. Those thoughts were going through my head in my despair in December. If what I was experiencing at that moment lasted without hope of ending, it's horrific. It's terror. The absence of any peace, of any joy, of any love, of any relief, of any kindness, of any mercy. 
poor. And those outside of Jesus, when they die, will experience that eternal horror. And that, dear brother, should never make us say, yep, they deserve it. It should fill our hearts with fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. And secondly, it should fill our hearts with incredible, incredible gentleness and lowliness of heart towards sinners. Into that despair, into that desperate picture comes Jesus, the provided substitute, the one who tasted death for everyone, the one who is gentle and humble of heart. And he says to all men everywhere, come, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Jesus saves men from hell. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is kind and gentle. And so come to him. He loves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your son. We are thankful that he is gentle toward us. Oh God, we have sinned against you in so many terrible ways. And yet there's Jesus being kind. Ever living to intercede on our behalf. Dignifying us with his own righteousness. drawing us near, surrounding us with his peace, thinking much of us. Oh God, we're so grateful for him. We're so grateful for the work that he did. We're so grateful for his humility. Father, I pray, like the Apostle Paul, we would have compassion toward those who do not know you. That we would not rejoice in revolution and the taking up of arms. That we would rejoice that there is a Savior of sinners who has the power to grant eternal life. God, I pray that that would animate our speech that that would animate our service to our families, that that would animate all that we do. 
Father, I pray that, that you would bless us richly as we think about the work of your Son. Bless us with meditations of his glory, of his kindness, of his heart toward us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us. We continue to labor through this veil of tears. You've given us work to do. You've given us trials to face for our building up. You have given us you have given us many difficulties. And yet, Father, you've saved us. And so we say, oh, we can endure every other momentary light affliction. Father, I pray that we would honor you, that we would love you, that we would grow in you. Father, I pray that we would be good witnesses where we work, I pray that we would be, that we would trust you. Lord, I pray that when we are in anguish, when we are depressed, when we feel hopeless, that we would go to prayer, that we would use whatever last energy we might think we have to open your word and find solace in it. And that we would remember our Savior. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.